welcome back. This is Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. The show sponsored by QM Travels. Quincy and Mitchell are a great couple hosting sailing adventures aboard their beautiful Peterson 46 called Esprit. QM Travels provides an exceptional charter experience. Quincy and Mitchell are both really skilled sailors. Mitchell's a certified sailing instructor with years of experience teaching at various schools, including OCSE here in the East Bay. But it's not all about sailing. Quincy is a certified nutritionist who creates holistic, healthy meals and will cater to any dietary restrictions. Sail with QM Travels for a day a weekend or an offshore passage and you won't be disappointed. They'll be in the bay until September, then they're headed to Southern California and Mexico. Also, this spring they're offering sailing adventures in the Caribbean. And in June, this one really appeals to me, they're sailing in the Line Islands of the Pacific on a 72-footer. They want you to join them. I did an interview with Quincy and Mitchell on episode 13 of Out the Gate. You can listen to that or check out their schedule at qmtravels.com. Or you can follow them directly on Instagram at qmtravels. So this week, in January of 2018, Caitlin Schwartzman and Jason Rucker set sail with their son Arlo and their daughter Alma from Alameda for a year-long circuit around the Pacific. Their boat, Debonair, is a 44-foot double-ended wooden catch, a beautiful boat. And it's actually the sister ship to the boat that Caitlin went cruising on with her parents, Beth and Gary Schwartzman, in the 70s. Very cool story there. I sat down with Caitlin, Jason, Alma, and Arlo at their home in Alameda a few weeks ago and asked them about their inspiration for the trip, their preparation, the trip itself, and, of course, their future plans. Enjoy the conversation. You, Caitlin, were a bit of the drive behind taking the family off cruising, which we'll get more into. So tell us a little bit of of your background. I grew up cruising off and on with my family. Um, The first time from San Francisco, uh, where I grew up, uh, when I was five and six, my family sailed from San Francisco to the East Coast via the Panama Canal. Uh, So the idea of taking kids out to sea wasn't shocking for me. Um, But I also continued to work uh, here and there on boats um, in my 20s um, and eventually started a a program uh, called the Tall Ship Semester for Girls. And we took high school girls out to sea for a semester at a time. And uh, that reinforced for me the incredible power of sailing of uh, the ocean, of being part of a crew, um, the potential for that in the lives of young people. So that was something that you knew that you wanted to introduce your own family to. Absolutely. And Jason, when did you hear about this notion? Caitlin and I talked about it from right when we met. Caitlin says it was on our second date, but I think it was earlier than that that we, <laughs> we talked about the idea of going sailing uh, with our family. We've all had had it, and, and so then the kids have kind of had it their whole coming up, have known that this was part of the plan. We're different than some families in that Caitlin came into this with a lot of uh, knowledge and uh, enthusiasm for the plan. And I came, uh, was always into boats, but uh, didn't do anything like that growing up. And then. What um, is your background with boats? My background in boats is just messing around with boats with my family, very small boats, really. And then uh, here in the Bay Area, or back you east, grow? I grew up in Connecticut and okay. and played around with boats. Got to do stuff at Mystic Seaport mm. uh, Museum, which was a really neat place. Uh, summer camps and sailing their 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 beautiful schooner, brilliant uh, there in summer camp and stuff like that. So I was always really excited about boats. And then here in San Francisco, through volunteering, I got into the Maritime Museum, San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park. Uh, first in the boat shop, working on boats, uh, and then eventually I got I got to be the captain of the uh, the schooner Alma for almost 10 years. Um, and so that was my uh, boat experience coming into this. And um, so 
you know, I met Caitlin through my work at the park and her advocacy for her program. And um, so we've always been talking about this plan and um, kind of both, both were very enthusiastic about it. So it's been a real part of, part of our plan all along. And Arlo and Alma, you, as your dad just said, have kind of heard about this from growing up. What are your earliest memories of hearing your parents talk about heading off? I don't know. It's always just been something that I've known we're going to do. And Arlo, you, same? Yeah, uh, it's always just been kind of something that's going to happen. I remember talking about, my par- with, about it with my parents when I was little, and I went for a lot of years, I went kind of back and forth on whether I wanted to do it or not. Mm. <laughs> Go ahead. Do you guys have any first memories of when we got debonair our boat or seeing the boat or being on the boat any year? Because you guys were fairly young when that happened. Yeah. Um, I remember going down to the Fortman Marina uh, where we kept the boat once it was in Alameda before we had the boat and looking at our slip and then going down a couple of days later and looking at the boat in her slip after sailing her back from San Francisco. Any memories of what you were thinking when you looked at the boat, or was it just like, hmm, okay? I was pretty excited at the time. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I remember trying to figure out which bunk was going to be mine <laughs> then, even though we totally remodeled the boat <laughs> since then. How about you, Alma? Um, yeah, I remember after my dad and some friends sailed her up from Southern California, seeing her for the first time. And I remember being excited about the idea that that was our boat and we were going to go sailing on her. That's great. So I want to hear about Debonair. There's a great story behind Debonair and connection to a past boat. Caitlin grew up sailing on a really cool double-ended cutter built in the 30s in Southern California named Bantry Bay. She and her family uh, did that sail. They did another epic sail from the East Coast to Africa to South America uh, later on when Caitlin and her sister were kind of middle school age. I was in high school. Yeah. And so we were just starting to look about and think about boats when we saw advertised another boat by the, uh, her, her boat that Caitlin grew up on was named Bantry Bay and it was designed by Edson Schock in Southern California in the 30s. And we saw advertised a double-ended catch-rigged boat designed by Edson Schock uh, for sale in Southern California. And so we figured we really needed to go check it out. Mm-hmm. And we did. And we fell in love with her and inspected her a little bit, made an offer on her, decided to buy her, and then uh, got a hold of the plans for the boat and realized it was the same design. Uh, Our boat, Debonair, was built in the 70s to the same design as Bantry Bay, Bay, which was built in the 30s. Different rig, ours was catch rigged, Bantry Bay was cutter rigged, and the style of the house on our boat is a little more modern, built in the 70s, and the layout below is completely different, so we didn't know it was the same boat when we first saw it. after we had decided to buy the boat, we realized their sister ships uh, built about 40 years apart in the same town in Southern California. Wow. Uh, and so that was really powerful. It kind of felt meant to be Caitlin's parents, Beth and Gary, uh, helped us look the boat over, inspect the boat, and sailed the boat with us here in San Francisco. And so that was a pretty powerful experience. And, and I actually have a photo that Caitlin's folks took of her five years old in the boatyard under the boat uh, when they're working on the boat and she was helping to put nails in the bottom of the boat. Uh, and it's a really distinctive boat shape. Uh, we have actually have a model over here of the boat. Uh, but I have a, a photo of Caitlin at five under the boat and then here we were hauling the boat out and our kids were in the boatyard with the boat. And so, it, and Caitlin's parents were there. It was a really powerful wow. experience for us and definitely felt like the boat, it, it, we were meant to find that boat. And I've spent a lot of time under that hull, hauled out since then. <laughs> yeah. You know both of those boats well. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting to think about how Caitlin knows, knows the boat. Caitlin, talk about that experience 
and the differences between sailing the two boats, first as a child and then as an adult? I think, I think the differences come much more uh, from who, who I am aboard the boat. I, it's almost impossible, I think, to compare them for me. Um, each is incredibly powerful um, when I was a kid because it was an opportunity to see the world, because it was an opportunity to take responsibility on. Um, and those were certainly true in the adult voyages, <laughs> the most recent one, but in a very different way. This is the first time I've, I've had the kind of responsibility I had uh, uh, for our own vessel. Um, Did it give you a different perspective as a parent for what your parents were doing when you were sailing as a kid? Certainly, certainly, although I think we approached it in some different ways. Um, you know, when my parents started cruising, that was the 70s, Yeah, and those were different times. You know, <laughs> the, yeah. we have the no seatbelt. So you know, we never wore seatbelts ashore, right. and we had the equivalent at sea. <laughs> so I think we looked at it differently. That said, I think what really impressed me about what my parents did was neither of them had grown up sailing. I think my dad had sailed a styrofoam boat once on a lake in New Jersey, and my mom had once sailed a canoe her father had fixed up with an outrigger when they decided to take off. Like I said, it was the 70s, and they figured it out by reading, by thinking, by talking to people, by trial and error. In comparison, Jason and I went into this with a lot of experience. Um, and it's hard to imagine, for me, what it must have been like for them to head out with so little experience and have to figure so much out along the way. Yeah. And, and it's impressive. <laughs> that is impressive. That is impressive. It's coming from a, a different place. Um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about the process. Once you got Debonair here, of getting her in shape to go cruising, mm -hmm. how many years was that? That was six years. I think the kids remember a lot of their weekends and vacations of those six years were spent in boatyards or on the boat working. We were lucky to have a, a, a number of really skilled and talented and willing friends who came and, and helped us. Uh, I don't know that we would have gotten out of here when we did without that. Um, but we did all of the work ourselves. We came to love the Berkeley Marine Center and the folks there mm. who were super supportive. We touched every part of the boat. Um, we replaced all the running and standing rigging. We added 3,000 pounds of lead to the keel. Hmm. We completely reconfigured the forward third of the accommodations below, adding bunks for the kids where there had been a workshop space. Hmm. We sistered frames. Uh, we replaced chain plates. And we did have help. We had friends who helped us. And we had uh, Steve Hutchinson over at uh, Berkeley Marine Center that did a bunch of really great stuff for us. And other really capable friends, uh, shipwright friends, who did some big remodeling help help for us. But we were we were busy all the time, and our friends stayed busy all the time. And yeah. uh, we actually had both masts out of the boat for pretty substantial repairs. They're wooden masts. Uh, so yeah, we we stayed busy for six years on the boat, and then kind of in the last year, year and a half. It was really full time of all our free time and mm -hmm. all our weekends and all our vacation time. And How did you balance that with life here? Uh, we're sitting in your home here in Alameda. And kids were obviously in school. Um, was that a, a tension or was it just a passion were of love? Were we supposed to balance that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there was no balance. We were pretty, that was, of course, that was a challenge. Um, and, and we faced the additional, um, uh, we, my parents had planned, who were very capable people, to help us get underway and launch us on this voyage. And in those six years, each of them was diagnosed with cancer and passed away in that mm. period. And so we were caring for them and, and, and dealing with, with all, all that happens around that. And so uh, there was a balancing act to do. Jason yeah. and I both worked. The kids were in school. They had their needs. And so there was a balancing act. And I would say we didn't always achieve the balance very well. We were, um, I don't think anyone goes cruising without some kind of, sacrifice maybe is too strong a word because it's a choice, but well, the payoff is great enough that it makes the, the, the struggle that can sometimes be to get ready um, worth it for us. And it comes for different people in different ways. Some people talk about, the financial austerity they put in place for years and years and years 
certainly we were careful with our budgets to save money, but for us there was really a, an all-out push. Every moment of our lives were busy. Um, and we decided that was worth it, and that we yeah. could get something out the other end. And I think, in retrospect, we're, we're good with that. But um, we didn't do fun things on the weekend with other families for quite right. a long time. <laughs> and Arlo and Alma, I want to get your perspective on this, because I read a blog post on, on your blog before I came over today that was talking about the things that you left behind. And, you know, that wasn't easy. And Arlo, I think you wrote that, yeah, this is, it's definitely worth it, but uh, talk a little bit about that, what you had to leave. Probably first and foremost was our dog and our friends. <laughs> um, yeah. We had to leave the dog with some other friends, and it was, I expected to miss him more than I ended up missing him. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you didn't hear that. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was nice to see him again, but it's also nice to know that you don't need a lot of the things you think you need when you're at home. Mm. And Arlo, I had the sense for both of you, and maybe you articulated it most frequently on the boat, that kind of the first few months of the voyage, although you were enjoying it and it was remarkable, you weren't all in yet in some ways. Mm -hmm. But at some point that switched, and at some point on the voyage you said, you know, let's stay out another five years, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about what that was for you, that shift? The couple years before we left and the first couple months of our trip, I was not looking forward to it and had a lot of misgivings about it and you were how old when you left in what grade was i 14 when i left um yeah so eighth grade mm -hmm. yeah i think a lot of it was leaving the organized structured life that school had kind of provided school and sports mm. and having to structure and schedule your own life and manage your own stuff like schoolwork and at first, that shift was kind of challenging, but then I ended up enjoying and really being able to put that freedom to good use. It wasn't really until we crossed from Mexico to the Marquesas that I really felt like I wanted to keep going. Hmm. Was there like something on the passage, or was it just the amount of time? Yeah, I think that was really when I feel like Arlo and I became a big part of the crew. Ah, you were able to contribute and participate. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it just felt, I guess, a part of it was also, we were more removed at that point huh. from our life at home that we could really be there and not thinking about home and what we left behind. Yeah, be yeah. more present where mm -hmm. you were. That's really interesting. You mentioned the change in school, Arlo, and I wanted to ask you about homeschooling and that adjustment. And you're saying it was kind of rough in the beginning. <clears throat> how was it different? Explain first what, how you did homeschooling on the boat. We did it very casually. <laughs> <laughs> Just we probably ended up doing six or seven hours a week of school total, um, and it wasn't formal school at that either. It was kind of like, oh, now it seems like it's time you pull out your math and you do a little bit of math or you w read your book or stuff like that. And we ended up being able to manage, once we'd gotten used to it, we ended up being able to manage it all ourselves and stay on what schedule we needed to do. Just you do a little bit now, a little bit then, whenever works for you. And you said when you first left, that was, you were a little apprehensive about that, not having the schedule. Did you, at the end, do you like that, managing it yourself? Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah. Yeah, I know that at first I didn't, like the idea of it either. I wasn't, I kind of missed the structure of school. Uh -huh. But by the end of the trip, I realized how much more there is to learning than just like official school. Uh huh. And you guys were able to incorporate, I was reading on the blog, you know, you were learning about oceanography, and I, I loved it when you guys <laughs> took out the book and figured out whether the, um, the seaweed that you had found was edible or not, and then cooked it up. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one time we were in the Tuamotu, uh, the first atoll that we went to, Tahanea. We were there with two other boats with kids, and for example, one thing that we did is one day we went ashore to one of the little coral islands that makes up the, the atoll, and we measured our like our steps and um, we used hand bearing compasses and we mapped the at the little motu 
Cool. And then we buried treasure and um, oh. sent pictures of the maps to other people. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, so when you came home, it was about a year later, did you find, how did you find um, you were in comparison to other kids? Did you jump right back into the next year of school? Yeah, actually, uh, despite the minimal schoolwork that we did when we got back, uh, at least in math, we were ahead of our peers. Wow. And it just, I mean, it was really interesting. After two weeks back in school, it kind of felt like we'd never left. Huh. Like, just how easy the blend back into life at home was. It was actually quite surprising. That's great. So what dictated when you eventually set off? It was huh. January of 2018, right? And why? An odd time of year to leave. Yeah, San Francisco. that's cool. That, what prompted the question? So originally, a, a little little bit of the the reason um, turned out to be vestigial. We we originally thought we might only have a year because Jason was just going to take a year off from his work. He ended up leaving his work, and in retrospect, sometimes I wish we had made it into a two years voyage. I think we all maybe felt that way, but we we took about 15 months total, and in order to do that the way the hurricane seasons played out in the northern and southern hemisphere, we felt we needed to leave uh, the bay in January um, in order to, uh, well, we sailed south from San Francisco fairly quickly down the coast of California and Baja California um, in order to be um, in Mexico and preparing to cross in the spring. We left in April okay. of 2018. Uh, before the hurricane season in our hemisphere. And then we spent seven months in French Polynesia, and we crossed again to the northern hemisphere in December of um, 2018 to avoid the southern hemisphere hurricane season. So, uh, so we then crossed from Ho Hawaii to Alaska in um, summer of 2019. Right, okay. So we, we did basically a, a, a large clockwise circle, uh, alternating northern and southern hemisphere, depending on where the hurricanes were not. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and so that, that really dictated when we left San, Fran San Francisco. So it was cold when we left, and uh, it was cold, and there were some pretty big seas from the n North Pacific storms in, in the far north, but we pretty quickly got south. Uh, there's just a kind of a funny little detail where our that year was kind of bracketed by two big surf events. One was that we were trying to leave San Francisco and Mavericks was happening. Mm. And so we waited a few oh, days. Geez. We waited a few days. There was some big winter storms that were driving Mavericks, 17 to 20 foot swells. And so we waited a few days before leaving the bay, we, which gave us time to kind of sail around the bay and see some friends. And then our final trip from the Marquesas to Hawaii at the end of the trip, at the end of our year, there were some big winter storms in the North Pacific that were driving big swells, and they actually ended up canceling a couple of the, the big surf events on the North Shore of Oahu because the swell was too big. As we were coming into Oahu. <laughs> wow. So we, 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 in both cases, everything worked out fine for us, but it was kind of, uh, it was kind of funny to us that um, we're not surfers, but we had these two major surf, uh, surf uh, situations that bracketed our year. Huh. You intended the trip to be a year. Did that feel like a push to get around the Pacific in that amount of time? Yeah, a little bit it did. Um, it, there's a thing for everybody in life and for cruisers too of everywhere you go, you could spend more time and experience more of the, you know, each island group, each island in French Polynesia, each island group in French Polynesia was its own place, and we felt like we could have stayed longer everywhere we went, at the same time that there's the whole world ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, so that's a constant struggle is, is how long do we stay here, when do we decide to go on to see the next great thing. It's easy, and I think some people that don't have any time limitation <coughs> lose, kind of can lose track of time and say, we want to sail around the world in two years, three years, five years, and end up spending four years in Mexico and then <laughs> years in the South Pacific. Uh, but we had this, uh, this year we had given ourselves and it really did keep us moving. And there were some challenges to that. We could have sp spent another season in French Polynesia. But also, we really um, kind of geared up to go and it meant a couple of things. It meant one that 
we we got Arlo and Alma up to speed, and we kind of needed them as crew. Our our boat has a, a few inefficiencies compared to some more modern boats that that mean that we really all four sailed the boat. So mm -hmm. we did. We don't have roller furling uh, headsails, for instance. So uh, when we did sail changes, yeah, we would if we Hank if, in if we could sails. get everybody <clears throat> on deck, we would all work on it and. So we, we our, our needing to keep moving meant that we needed them to get up to speed, and we really uh, depended on Arlo and Alma as crew. Um, was it just the four of you for the most part? For the most part, it was just the four of us. For each of the longer passages, um, we did what, 25 days uh, to the Marquesas, uh, 21 or two days from the Marquesas to Hawaii, and Hawaii to Alaska was 18, 19 days, something like that. For each of those passages, we had another friend on board okay. uh, just to make um, make the sleep more reasonable. Yeah. But for all of the passages, those and the, the passages of five days or seven days that we did, just the four of us, uh, Arlo and Alma stood watches um, and were important cr crew members by the time we were making passages. That's great. That's great experience. And, um, do either one of you want to talk about standing watch? We started off sharing the dawn watch for about three hours and acro across the Pacific. And then in the South Pacific and on the way to Hawaii, I started taking an additional afternoon watch. And it was, it felt good to step up and be part of the crew. And it was kind of fun, even though at the time it often didn't seem quite as fun to be standing out in the cold for three hours. Yeah. Alma, you wrote a little bit on the blog about being up with your mom, I think, on Night Watch. Just what's that experience like um, for you? I think at the time when I wrote the blog post, it was before Arlo and I started standing watch, and I just woke up in the night and came up on deck. It felt like a whole different world. The stars, you've... There's almost nowhere else you'll see that many stars, just everywhere. Just It felt completely new, completely different from what you'd experienced mm -hmm. in the past. Yeah, yeah. How do you talk about that to your friends who haven't had experiences like that? You, I mean, you, we don't really. Yeah, <laughs> you don't. It's They're not going to understand. So you can show them pictures and they appreciate that, but we don't really have in-depth conversations about it. Yeah. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, you guys met lots of other cruising kids, did you not, when you were out there? Mm -hmm. We did. We met a lot of kids, and we met a lot of other, or at least I did neat adults who I really enjoyed mm -hmm. spending time with. In the South Pacific, I met this one guy who was living a subsistence lifestyle in Tawau, in the Tuamotus, and I helped him, my dad and I helped him uh, build fishwares like fish traps in the lagoon there. And we went fishing for lobsters with him on the outside of the, the atoll in his little speedboat. And that was really fun, despite the fact that I didn't speak much French and he didn't speak much English. It was still really fun. Okay, you guys covered a lot of ground in here. <laughs> um, and we've gotten the uh, the sketch of the, the, the trip. I want to focus on then some particular p spots, to, uh, highlights that you want to talk about from that year? We all have uh, highlights of locations and experiences. Um, one big, kind of, kind of one that's not just a single experience uh, is I didn't, I hadn't done this before, Caitlin had, and so that whole the, the whole way we lived on the boat as a family of four, um, how close we were as a family, uh, and how it's a rare uh, chance that you don't get much in life of having the same life to live together at the same time every day, and a, a really obvious, clear mission is a little too strong a word, but a, a a common focus and a common goal of taking care of the boat, taking care of each other, and getting to where we need to be, and then being there and being together. So that, to me, was 
was a real gift of that year. It's just on a boat, everybody, you know, uh, the crew mentality, and when everybody gets it, and it really, maybe that's part of the reason that the passage was a big transition for us, is that in that passage we all uh, were on as a crew together, around the clock, for how many days? 25. 25 days. How many hours? And Two hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> 25 days, two hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> but who's these counting? Guys, <laughs> these guys know exactly. Um, but that experience of, you know, you everything on a boat you do because you have to. And yeah. there's a pressure and a responsibility there. There's also a pride there. Uh, and there's a clearness of purpose and an, and an ease and a no-nonsenseness about it that, that was great. And the way that we got to live that way for a year, for me comes up before I think about the incredible experiences with all the different places, which also are, are real highlights of that year. Yeah, yeah. So um, I have two children myself, and I know that they, they always get along beautifully. There's never any bickering or, or fighting. So what? how do you deal with those moments when um, the boat seems really small? <laughs> when we arrived in Hawaii, uh, we were met by some friends who took us in and gave us soft couches to sit on, and it felt very luxurious there in their home. And they asked us that question, and we were all at a loss for how to answer it. Um, we, we rarely found that to be the case. And that really set apart our time at sea from our time at home. Huh. And that was really the way we could answer it. Our lives were so simplified. And we lived perhaps even, our boat was smaller than most in that um, she's, she's not set up like a modern sailboat below. There's only one door in the whole boat, and that's on the head. Arlo and Alma shared a very small space forward, and the rest of the boat was open. We often, if we had a friend aboard, they were sleeping right in the main cabin. At home, you know, we're all going different directions. Arlo might have cross-country practice. Alma needs to go to theater. Jason and I need a break because we've just been at work. And so as much as we try to work together, we have different needs at different moments, and we have to negotiate those. On the boat, we were, we were, it really comes back to what Jason was saying about our, our shared sense of purpose mm -hmm. and our looking out for each other. Um, we rarely went ashore that everybody didn't row ashore together. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, ha we had such similar needs that those issues didn't arise. It took a little transition. It wasn't magically that way from the beginning. Um, I, I think that at first, our Alma and Arlo especially were working that out. Um, but I don't think there's been a time in our lives that they have lived um, as harmoniously as yeah. we did on the boat. How, did that make it tough coming back? A week or two after we got back and the kids had entered school, we kind of we kind of huddled up, just not on purpose, but it sort of happened. And and one of the kids said, "I just don't feel like we've been together enough lately," you know. And yeah. that's of course subsided and eased as as we've spent more time back here. But but we had that feeling of of being so in tune out out at sea as a crew that that isn't always the case ashore. Yeah. I don't know whether that would have persisted for years and years. You know, we, we had such an intense 15 months mm -hmm. that we could really set aside a lot of other ways of being that didn't serve us. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Arlo and Alma, do you think there was a change in how you relate to each other or how you relate to your parents? I've noticed this on previous smaller time, smaller trips that we've spent a lot of time together. And so I think it's just kind of like a, back and forth, like whenever you're on the boat or spending other time in close quarters with your family, I think you're fine. And <laughs> when we're back here, I mean, we're fine as well, but we're not quite as close. And I think that's just kind of how the way it goes. And so... What is it? What is it about being on the boat that you think makes it feel different? There's no room to have arguments or disagreements, mm. and so you just don't have them. There's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> no two ways about it, maybe. I think that might be the case. Another thing that affected it was that 
we all have the same goal. We're all going to the same place. We don't have conflicting needs as much as we do at home. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it would be harder for us to live in that small a space at home yeah. than it is on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you asked us about particular moments, and uh -huh. Jason talked about the less than particular moments. It's this overall sense of... Of, of shared purpose that stood out. But, but there are the pieces. I mean, I don't, I don't want to minimize this piece of seeing amazing places and meeting amazing yeah. people. Which no, was, I was going to go back huge. to that. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I want to hear about them. And there's an overwhelming sense there, too, whether it was in Mexico or among other cruisers we met or Polynesians or Alaskans. Um, there's just a, we were met with generosity everywhere we went. You met the Vodders yes. and did, a, did an interview with them. Mm -hmm. We met them in Nukuhiva, and I think it was within a few days of meeting them, they had a, a, a spare engine part we needed and offered it to us freely. And that's one small example of the incredible community of, of cruisers that we became a part of in this. Um, and the same was true. I had to pick the same spot, Nukuhiva. We went ashore there and were invited to join um, a really amazing wood carver in his workshop just because we showed interest in the wood that he was, he was cutting. And he wanted to show us for several hours um, wow. what he did. And in the next island, um, a man who taught paddling um, the traditional va'a canoes, pulled the kids in and taught them how to do that and said, use our canoes whenever you want. That sense of generosity also brings out the best in us. Mm -hmm. We met with that everywhere we went, and so it was a year of feeling generous also, and we've mm -hmm. done what we can to participate in that with other cruisers and also with, with folks ashore. We were able, once we could get back to the States um, and get access to catalogs, we ordered um, some grinding wheels that this carver really wanted and couldn't get anywhere in French Polynesia, and were able to find a cruising boat, some friends in Hawaii who would be sailing to the Marquesas and sent them with him, you know, back. And it's been, I guess, a, I guess those are the, ex the, other, the other experiences that matter so much to us, is the, in the interactions with, um, with people. And it sounds like you've been able to keep those connections alive, even if you're, even yeah. as you're back here yeah, on shore. Yeah, some of them. Some yeah. of them. Um, Jason's recently been corresponding with the paddling instructor. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's great. Who's and a I know legend you, on his island. Actually, mm -hmm. the day that um, I interviewed the Vodders, they were going out sailing on the Alma with you. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. So they ended up back in this part of the world briefly and are headed back to their boat now. But um, yeah, and it was really great to, like Caitlin said, we made really fast and close friendships with the the other cruising families and other cruising people we met out there. And so to see them back here and fall back into the, the fun friendship we had with them uh, was great. They came out on the Alma one of the days this past season when, I, when we were out there. And some other other boats with kids we've kept in touch with and we'll look forward to seeing again when we're out there. Talk a little bit about being captain of the Alma and how that compared to the sailing you were doing in the Pacific. It's a quite a different boat, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it's entirely different. Oof, for those begin? who don't know the Alma, yeah, yeah, talk the a little bit about schooner it. Schooner Alma is a really cool and really unusual boat. So she is a Built like a shoebox, she's uh, <laughs> a sailing barge, uh, built in 1891 in Hunters Point, San Francisco, 62-ish uh, feet long on deck and 22 feet wide. She weighs uh, a lot, I think it's 60 tons, uh, and is only two and a half feet deep because she's built like a shoebox. So she's really buoyant, really stable, made for carrying big cargoes of hay and lumber from San Francisco up and down the rivers to Sacramento, Stockton. Hence uh, the shallow draft so she could get up the, so the she rivers. Could, she would take, you know, big, big ships would come in with lumber from up the coast to San mm -hmm. Francisco, uh, and then scow schooners would bring that lumber up river, uh, and, and they could go all the way up to Sacramento, Stockton. There were hundreds of them. They were like the fat, flatbed trucks of, wow. of the maritime world of the turn of the century. And uh, just an amazing boat, schooner, gaff schooner rig, uh, really, uh, she has a centerboard. She's just a very unusual and very cool boat. And she was great for carrying cargo, this big platform, and now she's great for carrying people. She's a relatively small 
little ship. You know, she's 62 feet, uh, but she really comfortably carries 50 people on deck. Wow. Uh, and really comfortably, you know, she doesn't heal. It's blowing 25 knots on the bay, and she just kind of plows across the bay. The uh, One former captain said it's like sailing a tennis court. Uh, but <laughs> she's just... You can put your drink down. Yeah, you really can, you know. And so she's a fascinating... Uh, a really neat boat and a really fun boat to sail. But the kind of sailing I was doing uh, was day sailing. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of boat handling. I really uh, got a lot of good time uh, and experience handling a boat under sail and, and motoring to and from the dock and um, and working with people, just the crew and the passengers. There was a lot of interpersonal work that was a lot of fun for me. I like uh, working with people and to get to share that experience with so many people was really a lot of fun. But it didn't relate a whole lot to what we were doing. You know, in terms of seamanship and, and sail handling and that sort of thing, I, I, uh, the experience I got there was, was great. But I guess a couple things that leads into thinking about is one, just the, the experience of sailing our boat on this passage, there's just a, the responsibility you have is, is constant. It, it's, you know, from the day we left San Francisco to the day we were done in Hawaii, we were kind of always on, mm -hmm. there's that. There's the constant thinking through of big picture planning, but really the big difference uh, for us on that as a family was that in a really unusual way, I think, uh, for most people, Caitlin and I, we really, and this kind of startles some people, just the term of it, we really co-captained the boat. And so that was something that we had to figure out how to do. But I think we really did figure it out. And so uh, both kind of in terms of protocols and how we handled stuff, we kind of had the different things that we liked doing on the boat and that we focused on, but the planning, day-to-day -day planning and big picture planning and handling the boat, we really partnered on. We both brought a lot of experience to it. Uh, and, that, and that too came as a, that there was a, an adjustment to make of figuring out how to do that well. But we did, whether that was how we got weather every day and talked together about our the, the weather situation and our plan for the, you know, plan as our, our passage went ahead, or whether that was our anchoring protocol, we figured out the ways that we wanted to interact to have a, to make decisions uh, collectively. It was another challenge, but it was a really good thing for us, and, in, and since it worked out, it was, we felt like we brought the best of both of our experiences and knowledge to decision making on the boat. We actually haven't seen that on any other boat, and I think traditionally that would be, uh, it's a model that might be frowned on. Boats can usually be so hierarchical. Mm -hmm. um, and every, every cruising family has to find their own way. But I think one of the cool things about this for us was that being co-captains made space for Arlo and Alma really to be crew. Mm. I guess the, the, you know, the thing that people worry about with any sort of co-captaincy or thing like that is, you know, what about an emergency when you have to just go now? And we, we kind of talked that through enough to know that we, we kind of had a protocol for how we were going to handle that. But what it meant was that when you do have the time to, to think and talk and make plans, whether it's ahead of time or day to day looking at the weather, it meant that instead of this just being in one person's head, it was something that we were talking about. And so Arlo and Alma would overhear that and kind of be more aware of, of the plan and of the discussion around the plan and of how we, were, how we were thinking about things. It also put the onus on us to have those discussions, which I think is an advantage. Good seamanship requires that you have uh, a buffer safety buffer requires that you think about a second or a third option and what ifs and we had to articulate those together it does raise questions and i'm curious about the the nitty-gritty details in terms of disagreements if say one of you felt okay this is a safe place for us to anchor and one of you said no i don't didn't 
I don't think so. I don't agree. How did you, was it consensus? How did you work things like that out? We worked it out by talking it through together. Uh, I think we started out in a couple of those exact instances with Caitlin being a little bit more conservative and cautious than me in terms of uh, sail configuration, for instance, and what, what, what amount of sail we should have for a given wind speed. Uh -huh. uh, but I pretty quickly <laughs> uh, uh, got on board with the program of, of, of how well it worked for us to be a little bit more cautious than I was being planning on being. And so we had just over and over instances where as the, as the wind built, Caitlin would be a couple of minutes ahead of me and saying we should reduce sail. And when, by the time we had tucked the reef in, I was really glad we had. Yeah. Arlo and Alma, what will you tell other kids or other families who are thinking about this or maybe not cruising, but some other adventure as a family together? What would you, what would your advice be? When you're first starting, just keep in mind that pushing yourself isn't always bad. And you should just kind of go with the flow and see how things work out until you make decisions about it. Wherever you are, you should try and put yourself out there and make connections. What haven't we touched on? One of the great yeah. pleasures was being a parent at sea, was watching Arlo and Alma grow over the course of the trip. The roughest weather, actually, of the entire year, uh, the night before we sailed into Oahu, we had gotten into um, crossing the Alinuihaha Channel. We had about 12 hours of you know, very steep 25 plus foot seas through the night um, and very big winds. The previous week, approaching the Hawaiian Islands, we'd had a week of when the seas had never gotten below 12 or 14 feet and sometimes mm. significantly higher. So you know, we'd, had a, we'd had a rough eight or nine days coming in. With the exception of one day, the, the kids had stood their watches through that, and we were really tired but feeling good and accomplished. We'd been away from things for so long. We came into Hawaii. We kind of ghosted into the beach off Waikiki at about midnight, dropped the anchor, went below and slept, and we were on deck the next morning, just in the early dawn light, the four of us, and that was another huddle. We kind of huddled in the cockpit and we looked ashore at all the lights on Waikiki Beach. And Arlo kind of jokingly said, I don't know, Mom, it looks kind of scary. Should we turn around? <laughs> and then this little light went on in my head, this consumer light, you know, that we hadn't been able to activate for a year. And I said, but I think we could get flip-flops there. I think we could get sunglasses, you know, these things <laughs> we've been doing without. And I think for me that moment stands with me because we felt like such a team. We realized we were about to make this transition back into contemporary consumer culture. We realized so it was so clear the value of what we had had that the transition was apparent. And when we were in Hawaii, one point I asked the kids, I said, so you've done this for a year. What do you think is the ideal age to go cruising? What would you tell other families? And you know, it was really gratifying for Jason and me that they each named their own age. <laughs> and we really talked about how for them this voyage was, you know, not to put go too deep, but it was a coming of age. And yeah. Jason and I really got to watch them do that. They, there was no question their value to our community and our family and their role in our world. And that, I think, is one of these really powerful things that happened, and it was a joy as a parent to be witness to that. And at home, we don't get to. So much of that is, happens over a longer extended period. We extend our adolescences out into our 20s, and so much of the coming-of-age pieces happen away from the safe family sphere. And it was a pleasure to see that. So where is Debonair now, and, and do you have any plans to sail her yeah, going yeah. forward? That's a that is a fun thing for us to talk about <laughs> is the plans. She's in Kodiak, Alaska. We spent last uh, summer, we sailed up there from Hawaii and spent uh, the rest of our summer in Kodiak on the island of Kodiak and around that area and just loved it. Far more remote than we expected, than I expected. In a whole summer of cruising, with the exception of one family we chose to sail in company with for a week, we didn't share an anchorage with any other boat for an entire summer. Yeah. Wow. There's Far more remote 
feeling than the South Pacific. Wow. Yeah. So that was incredible to us. And the people we did meet, the locals there were really sweet and generous and, and fun for us to meet. So she is sitting in the one big town in, on the island of Kodiak, which is the town of Kodiak. We will go back up there this summer as soon as we can, get her ready to go again. And our idea is to move a little bit east uh, from Kodiak to uh, the Kenai Peninsula and then Prince William Sound and probably as far as southeast Alaska uh, by the end of the summer. We hope to leave her there to do yet another summer after that. So after that, it's a little, the plan is a little bit murkier, but at this point, you know, Caitlin and I have the understanding that, that Arlo and Alma may kind of move on in their lives to other things, but at this point, they're still excited about going back, so we're excited about going back. So we've got this summer planned, with the idea of, of ending up in, in Southeast Alaska, someplace that we don't know yet, for the possibility of doing more beyond there. But we did find it kind of shocking not to have a boat on the bay, so we remedied that. Oh, yes? We just recently bought a fiberglass folk boat. 25 feet? Yeah. yeah. Nice, yeah. She's in Alameda now. We sailed her from Richmond to Alameda New Year's Day. Congratulations. Now you two have a boat that you can <laughs> take out sailing, huh? That's exactly right. That's our idea. <laughs> so my, I understand from the head nodding that you're interested in going back. The, the trip has not put you off sailing in any way. Uh, no, it's kind of boosted our want for sailing. Before we left, we enjoyed sailing, but we didn't have that much experience. And we didn't enjoy it as much as we do now either. Now it's a very central part of our lives. Well, thank you all very much. I've really enjoyed chatting, and good luck with continued cruising in Alaska and here on the Bay and beyond. Thank you, Ben. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. We hope to see you out there. Yep. That wraps up this week's show. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer. Until next week... Smooth sailing.